9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. We're joined today in Washington, D.C. by Andrea Kendall-Taylor, who's a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for New American Security and is a former Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia. Welcome, uh, Andrea. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And we're also joined by our friend, Joe Cerencion, who is uh, with the Quincy Institute and is one of the country's leading experts on nuclear weapons. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, Joe. You're very kind to have me on. Thank you, David. And we'll be joined in a bit by our friend, David Sanger, who is no doubt off doing something, but he'll join us in a minute. Obviously, today is a, uh, a day in which a great deal is happening. We've been talking about the threat of invasion in Ukraine or a new invasion of Ukraine for the past several uh, weeks. And uh, clearly today, it unfolded pretty much exactly as had been predicted by the Biden administration, as had been telegraphed by the Biden administration as part of their kind of extraordinary sharing intelligence campaign. Andrea, somebody who comes from the intelligence side of things and who has seen a lot of this, are you surprised? I mean, are you surprised it was that close to exactly what they said? It's a yes and a no. And I say that kind of thinking back to 2014 and how we were all caught so off guard. You know, it's really remarkable, I think, how far the intelligence community has come since then. We were surprised in 2014. We were surprised in 2015. And that was largely a legacy of the fight on terrorism, the whole intelligence community, and really the US government had repostured itself to deal with the threat of terrorism. And some of the regional bureaus, uh, Russia included, really atrophied. And, you know, if you think about going back in those days, you know, Russia was really a political backwater and no one was much thinking about it. So we've really come a remarkable way, you know, while I was there, you know, building up the capabilities, reorienting our collection posture. So, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see that they were so far out in front this time. I mean, it is just a different ballgame than 2014. I think it's why the Biden administration has been on such solid ground in navigating and dealing with this very difficult situation. The other piece that's so remarkable is the fact that they've been willing to be so public with the intelligence and with their warnings. It's a horrible situation that's unfolding, but I think we're in the best possible position that we could be in. We saw after Putin recognized the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk, the UK, the EU, and the US, all within 24 hours, already out with sanctions packages, seeing similar responses today. The unity and the cohesion we're seeing is really remarkable. And I do think it's in large part because they were able to do the pre-work and the planning and the consultations that set us, put us in the best possible position we could be in at this point. So Joe, I was struck by the fact that uh, Andrea said Russia used to be a backwater. 
And I know you're old enough to remember that it, when it wasn't. And that, you know, a lot of this feels a little bit like coming full circle, except that in, in the course of all of those Cold War years, we never got to this point. And as somebody who prepared for all of that, I, I, I suspect you were struck, as I was, that this is what we were waiting for, for year after year after year, and it didn't happen. And here it is coming out of the blue in 2022. What, what was, what's been your reaction to the day, Joe? If you're frightened by the moment we're in, you have a rational response to what's happening here. This is the closest we've been to two nuclear armed states entering into combat with each other. Now, they're not. The U.S. and Russia are not fighting. And, and President Biden, to his credit, had made very clear he does not want U.S. troops in Ukraine. I don't think the Joint Chiefs want to see U.S. and Russian forces fighting. But that is what we feared in the 1980s. And that was a moment that you have to go all the way back to that moment to have these fears of a fight between the United States involving Russia, then the Soviet Union, possibly escalating into a, a conflict with the United States and possibly escalating to the nuclear level. You then had millions of people in the streets of Europe protesting exactly that. Today, we have hundreds or thousands of people in the streets of Europe and in Moscow protesting this war. But it is a dangerous moment. It's dangerous just by what's happening in Ukraine. That alone is dangerous. But the possibility that this is spread and escalate should frighten everyone. I think there's a really interesting difference between the Soviet Union and Putin's Russia today, and that's like the form of government. So under the Soviet uh, Union, you had a, a person, you know, a, a party. It was more of a consensus-based way of decision making. Today, Putin's Russia, it's clear it's one man. We saw in his National Security Council meeting this kind of show trial where he went around to the person, dressed down his closest advisors and made them all agree with the decision. It's really clear there's no one in his inner circle who can contain him, constrain him. There's no one in his inner circle that I think can present information that is contradictory to his worldview. And that's what's dangerous. I mean, there is a ton of political science research that talks about personalism, that you get more aggressive foreign policies when it is just a single decision maker. So I think that's a remarkable difference. It's more brazen. He's re ready to take risks. That differs with the Soviet Union, where at least you had a Politburo and there was some collectivity to the decisions that they were making at the time. I think that's an important point, and I think it underscores the, the sensitivity of the, the moment. I see David Sanger has joined us. Hi, David. How are you? Hey, sorry to be late, but it's no. been, been a little bit of a busy day. Yeah, no. Yeah, indeed, indeed it has been. I think you heard some of that, that conversation. Yes, I did. I want to pick up on an aspect of it. In the past couple of days, you know, there have been people writing and saying, well, this just shows we shouldn't have done that NATO expansion. And I have to say, candidly, I've, I've had a different reaction, which is the reason that Putin was able to invade Ukraine was because NATO didn't expand to Ukraine. Uh, his argument that NATO expansion was a threat was, of course, a pretext and a lie. But the reason this doesn't seem likely to spread beyond the borders of Ukraine is because all the other countries in the region are members of NATO, effectively, and NATO is, is resolute, and it's also strong. What do you think? 
I think you're right. He clearly picked Ukraine because it wasn't a NATO member. He wasn't ready to go take that on. I think he believes if if you and I, I don't know if our other panelists sort of all agree with this, but if you believe the the common premise that he's trying to reconstitute what parts of the old Soviet Union he could, then you know at the end of tomorrow or the next day or something like that, he'll have Ukraine, although it's going to be hard to keep it. He's clearly got Belarus, which offered him the opportunity to go send in an invading force through their territory. He just bailed out the leader of Kazakhstan, who now owes him one. So he'll have three friendly governments there and one that he may or may not have to occupy. He said this morning he wouldn't occupy it, but I would say that his track record of truthfulness in the past week or so leaves something to be desired. The question of whether he messes with NATO may have less to do with whether or not his forces go over the border. I don't think they will. But I think his cyber may go over the border, right? Cyber does not tend to respect national borders. And that's a difference from something we had in the old Cold War. So what happens if he does the cyber attack to turn off the lights in parts of Ukraine or or other parts, and it also begins to take out the grid in NATO members. How do we deal with that? So we've got some complications in this round that we didn't have in the last round. Yeah. Let me follow up very quickly with you on that before I get back to the other two. And uh, because I thought of you today, I think of you every day, David. I, I, <laughs> I thought of you. I thought of you today because I saw a story <laughs> saying Biden had been presented with a number of cyber options offensive cyber options with regard to Russia. And of course, this is, you know, the sort of the $64,000 question here is, what else can we do? He can do as much as the allies allow in terms of sanctions, and he's going to do it. Whatever they allow, he's going to do it. He can provide certain kinds of training and military support for Ukraine and some financial support for Ukraine. All those things are on the table. They're all done. But the question is, particularly if this becomes a long, drawn-out insurgency, you know, the Russians come in, they get Kiev, they throw out the government, and then they, we get in this long. Is there anything else in our toolbox that we can actually use? And I want to come to all three of you with this, but I'm going to pick up here with David and ask, do you think offensive cyber options are sufficiently gray and unattributable that they're usable? Probably not. They're increasingly attributable. You can use them in more minor ways and get away with that attribution. What the NBC report you referred to, which, by the way, for whatever it's worth, Jen Psaki knocked down at the press briefing today and said the report was erroneous. I'm sure he's been presented with cyber options. I'm not sure he's been presented with the cyber options that were described in that report because. Most of them involved conducting acts that we might, or the other side might consider an act of war, particularly if it was done with non-cyber means, right? So if you bombed a country to to knock out their grid, they're probably going to regard it as an act of war. Not clear when you do something slightly more subtle with cyber that they would say, oh, that's okay. It's just Use cyber. It's not really an act of war. It's like a, a tap on the wrist. We're bad at cyber signaling because 
everybody regards the signal a little bit differently. Joe Biden has shown that he is reluctant over time to be the first mover in cyber in a big way, because usually the lawyers sit down, as we've discussed in other shows with you, David, and say, who's mapped out the escalation map here? And, you know, pretty soon it moves up to areas that Joe was just talking to you about. So and we, of course, as we've frequently discussed, have a much bigger attack surface than they do. Every bank, every every uh, utility grid, the fact that we're just a much more cyber connected society. So my guess is that Joe Biden might consider these. But I have a hard time imagining him pulling the trigger. I'd be interested to know if there's a different view among the panelists. Let me ask Joe and and then let me ask Andre the same question. It seems likely that the Russians have the military force to take the big cities of Ukraine and to depose the government. They may, in the course of that, do significant damage that could be caught on camera and will really inflame the situation. They may get involved in a lengthy insurgency. Almost inevitably, at some point, the cry is going to you know, rise up. We must do more for Ukraine. What can you do, Joe, for Ukraine, given that this is this first major confrontation between direct the two major superpowers? You have to be very careful here. Yeah. And, and that's why I appreciate President Biden. I think that's what he's doing. He's moving methodically, carefully, step by big step. These are not timid, tiny measures he's taking preserving our most important asset, unity of the alliance. We have a major alliance here. As David just pointed out, what does Russia have? Belarus, maybe Kazakhstan, you know? So he's doing all that very carefully. And then you go up to these, and he's always going to be confronting a Washington in particular that's going to demand more. Why aren't you imposing the sanctions now? Why aren't you putting troops inside Ukraine now? Why aren't you matching Putin's nuclear threat of yesterday where he specifically called out Russia's formidable nuclear capability and threatened, and this is his words, he says, in this context, there should be no doubt for anyone that any potential aggressor will face defeat and ominous consequences should it directly attack our country. So he's, he's making the nuclear threats, and that puts Biden in a, in a situation where he has to carefully calibrate what he's going to do. And I, I'm at, I'd be interested in what David has to say about this, because the trend over the last 10 years has been towards integrated deterrence, meaning you merge the conventional with the cyber, with the nuclear. And the idea is you strengthen each ladder of the escalatory ladder, step of the escalatory ladder, saying that your opponent has to be careful of how far they go. And this gets me to answering your question. If faced with conventional defeat or disaster or uh, outrages, does Biden go cyber? And if he does, how high does he go on cyber, knowing that the fire break between cyber and nuclear is being blurred here? So the idea was to strengthen our deterrence capabilities, but it also puts you on a very slippery slope. This could go south very quickly, whether Putin is winning or losing. If he's winning, there's going to be calls for us to do more. If he's losing, there's going to be a temptation for, for Putin to escalate the conflict. 
And we have been developing the weapons to do this, not just the cyber weapons, but new, more usable tactical nuclear weapons that make it, uh, the idea is that makes it easier for a political leader to use those nuclear weapons, knowing that he won't destroy a whole city. He could just destroy a, a port or a tank column or an airport. What do you think, Andre? You know, th- th- this cry is going to come. What options will we really have or will we be impotent? Will we be sitting on the sidelines and say, no, Ukraine, it's up to you? I mean, I think that's closer to the reality. And that's kind of the unfortunate truth. I mean, we will continue. You know, the president today talked about humanitarian relief. Uh, I know we have an economic aid package in the works. So there's a lot we'll have to do to help Ukraine kind of economically relieve some of the pressure, rebuild uh, and deal with some of the damage. But I think that kind of unfortunate truth is that we are kind of cordoning off Ukraine and we are doubling down on strengthening the resilience of the alliance. And I think there is now a very stark contrast between NATO member states and non-NATO member states. I would put in the NATO member states also Finland and Sweden, I think they're kind of part of this, even though they're not within the alliance. But I do think we're, we are increasingly have this dividing line. And most of what we're going to do, I think, is to kind of double down, strengthen the deterrence on our eastern flank. I expect after this, there will be real calls for us to increase our force posture in Europe to make permanent our enhanced forward deployment in the Baltics, reinforce deterrence in the Black Sea area. To me, it feels as if we are moving towards much more of a Cold War where we are. This is like you, I think you suggested that this is going to be a long haul. President Biden said as much today that we shouldn't expect the sanctions to have an immediate impact that all of a sudden Putin is going to stand down. I think we're in this for the long haul and we are going to have to relearn. I think some of the tactics that we use during the Cold War, we're going to have to have that very persistent pressure through sanctions, through, you know, counter the anti-corruption, uh, counter kleptocracy. I think that is likely to take on new life where we're making it much harder for the enablers of the Putin regime to enjoy the benefits of the West. Support for Russian civil society. There's a ton of Russians, by the way, that have left Russia, given how repressive it's become and have taken up places in Poland and Lithuania and other places. We need to be doing a lot more to support those people, to enable them to continue to do their work. The investigative journalists more on journalism so that Russians have a clear view of exactly who this leader is and the direction that he's taking their country. So to me, I think it is a long-term proposition where we're talking about this sustained, persistent pressure where we're working to really constrict and constrain Russia's capacity for more aggression. David, it's early days yet, right? We're not even finished with the first full day of this onslaught. But I do think that it's there are early signs that the Russian military superiority is producing some results for them that that suggest they may be able to go in fairly quickly. We'll see overnight and into tomorrow and the next day go into Kiev, possibly depose the government. Acknowledging that this may be a may be a long run. What's your sense right now of the outlook for the people of Ukraine? Well, that's the part I worry about the most. The government could lift its way out if they could get at the airport, and it looked like the Russians were at the airport 15, 20 miles north of, uh, of Kiev. I saw President Zelensky from a distance at the Munich Security Conference this past weekend. 
And I kept thinking to myself as I was watching him deliver his speech, you know, might this be his last speech as leader of the free Ukraine? It turned out it was. And did he really want to go home? And he did in a plane that presumably the U.S. helped arrange for that had um, an unmarked, no tail sign on it and no flight plan. So they were clearly concerned about it. He and a government in exile can get out. The poor people of Ukraine, who for months he told not to worry about this because he didn't want to trigger a panic, can't get out. They're sitting now in subway stations, huddled in on the steps with their kids and their pets. And one day they're going to emerge from it. And when they do, they are going to discover a Ukraine that isn't like the one when they went down the steps. It's going to be one that's run under Russian rules. That's what makes this whole thing so astounding. That I don't think, you know, while we knew it could happen, I don't think that we ever really thought that a free, if rising democracy, even if it's a corrupt and flawed one, and Ukraine was all of those would somehow, that we would take a step back into the Cold War era. And that's what we've done. I also don't know whether the United States is ready or able to go back to an era of containment. But that's what Joe Biden seemed to be suggesting. Is there any alternative, Joe, to an era of containment? I mean, you know, Vladimir Putin gave this sort of demented neo-czarist speech on Monday night in which he said, well, you know, it wasn't just I want to go back to the Soviet Union. He's like, I want to go back to before the Soviet Union. I want to go back to the Russian Empire. And my vision of Russia is that Russia. And, you know, if you're sitting in the Baltics, you know, you were nervous for a long time and you got to be much more nervous now. Is it possible that at any time in the foreseeable future, NATO gets complacent about Russia again? No, there is not. We have crossed the Rubicon here. We're not going back to this. Relations between Russia and the West are never going to return to the way they were as long as Putin is in control. And part of the reason is the way Joe Biden is answering this military adventurism. He's not meeting it militarily, although, as Andrea points out, there are troop movements, there are reassurances, but he's, answer he's answering it using our strengths, economy, unity, diplomacy, political isolation. And fortunately, even though Russia does have 6,200 nuclear weapons, and even though it is the largest nation in Europe, it's got an economy the size of Italy's or Texas. You can isolate these people. It's not going to be easy. It's still a very large economy, but it's not China. It's not the second or perhaps the first largest economy in the world. You can contain them. You can punish them for the act that they're doing. And you have to. You cannot let them get away with this. So, Andrea, you know, you've studied Russia for a long time. Today, despite the fact that the first few protesters who went out and protested in Russia were immediately picked up by the police, there came more and more protesters, I think, both in Moscow and in St. Petersburg. Yeah, about and, 700. And yeah, the question is, how does this play in 
Russia. And Putin already faced a democracy movement. He's got the Navalny trial going on right now. There is some frustration with him. And we've seen something else, you know, to me as a not casual observer, but not someone who's viewed it as closely as you have. We've seen a couple of things that are a little more anomalous. We've seen a couple of senior military officials critique Putin and say, let's not do this. And I saw an interesting thread from uh, Max Seddon of the FT, which showed a bunch of Russian celebrities, prominent celebrities who have already sort of gone on the record, gone on social media and said no to war. Can Putin, for all he is, face a backlash? So this is actually the question that I'm thinking about and starting to write on now, because, you know, we've talked about what a clarifying moment this has been for the international community. I mean, a lot of people had clear eyes before this, but if you didn't, it's impossible not to have them now. So it's clarifying for the international community. I think it may be equally clarifying for the Russian people. And it's not to say that they had rose-colored glasses or kind of, you know, held Putin necessarily in high esteem. They understand he's a corrupt leader, et cetera, et cetera. But you would talk to Russian analysts. I've talked to Russian opposition leaders. To the person, not one could fathom the fact that Putin would begin this war of aggression. They would concede, yes, he just wants to extract concessions. He wants to strangle Ukraine. He's going to inflict pain. But nobody would could believe that he would be willing to start a war of aggression like this against their Ukrainian neighbors. And so I think this is a clarifying moment for Russians, too, of, of exactly the leader that they have. I, you, you know, you raised the point about economic conditions. They've had a decade of stagnation. They're tired. They have covid. I don't think anyone wants to be drug into this kind of conflict. If we're talking about the proposition of partitioning and occupying a large swath of Ukraine, that's an expensive proposition. You look at what's happening in Crimea. There, there was initially, you know, euphoria, public support for that. That's done because now everyone recognizes it comes with a price tag. So, you know, my answer is, you know, analytically, objectively, I think Putin can ride it out that, you know, he, there is so much repression in Russia that it makes it hard for Russians to vocalize discontent. And, and that makes collective action hard. Uh, he's also kind of coup proof, not coup proofing, but um, inoculating himself from elite defection by doing that Security Council meeting. He also brought in all of the oligarchs today and kind of sat everyone down, which to me was not so much reassuring, but a warning like, hey, guys, you know, your fate is tethered to me and your continued success hinges on me staying in power. It was kind of one of those messages in my mind. So he's trying to inoculate himself from any kind of backlash. Um, this is the, the challenge of authoritarian regimes. They look stable until the very last moment that they're not. Um, and this time around, I do, I feel your sense of like, you know, there were more protests today in Russia than I expected. Yes. Um, the letter that you mentioned is notable. There, there, there is something that feels a little bit different this time around. And so I don't think we should discount the fact, you know, again, Putin has taken a huge risk here and it could backfire for him domestically. So this is the moment in the broadcast where we take a brief break so that people who are out there in the general public can say, gee, I wish I'd become a member and they go and sign up and become a member and hear the last bit of the podcast. So that's the time for all of you folks to do that. And until you do that, we say goodbye and, and we'll see you again next week. 
And for the rest of you who are members, we'll be back in one moment. <laughs> 